RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Ananesh Chaudhuri is Professor of Experimental Economics at the University of Auckland and the author of Nudged into Lockdown, Behavioural Economics, Uncertainty and COVID-19. He's just written an op-ed. You might see it soon. It's titled Collateral Damage from Our Zero COVID Mindset. Collateral Damage. Ananish Chaudhuri joins us now. And Ananish, thank you for giving us some time on Reality Check Radio to talk about what obviously you've been thinking about. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for having me. Okay, it's a, it's a pleasure. Collateral damage. That's a military term usually, isn't it? Correct. Correct. So describe the collateral damage and then we'll get on you know, to the whole story behind it and where we're heading. So the reason I use the term collateral damage, and lots of other people have used that term as well, is uh, when COVID-19 first hit, the thinking was that we were going to do everything possible to save COVID-19 lives. Right. But the problem is, and to use a little bit of jargon, um, as I point out in my book, See, when we are confronted with a crisis like this, we tend to focus too much on what we call identified lives, the lives that we can see being lost right in front of our eyes. But the problem, of course, is when you devote all your resources to fighting this one disease, you're obviously not left with much resource to fight other diseases. And so there are a lot of other deaths and other things that happen in the background. So the fancy term sometimes we use for this is statistical lives, that you are losing lives in a diffuse manner in the background, diseases that are not diagnosed, etc. So Turns out that often the statistical lives and the evidence is quite overwhelming that the other losses, or as I said, collateral damage is far more than any benefits from saving the COVID lives because I don't want to go too much on this point right now, but there are many other costs associated when you engage in things like stringent lockdowns. There are other economic social consequences. There's social division, there's psychological trauma. Kids have been deprived of education for the better part of two years. And the kids that have lost the most as a result of lockdowns are the kids that can afford to lose the least in terms of their schooling. This will, among other things, grossly exacerbate inequality. So when you... Add up all those costs, those costs are massive. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I didn't mean to come in over the top, but I'm I'm thinking that as you're explaining all this, um, I'm assuming that the knowledge that you're speaking of here was available before COVID hit, right? I mean, people have got their heads around this before, I would imagine, or is this new thinking? And I guess the obvious question is, surely all, all of what you just said should have been and I want to get on to you know other aspects of this, but it should have been anticipated, clearly anticipated. So there are two answers to this question. The first answer is when you say knowledge, depends on what exactly you mean by that. So all countries around the world, and particularly developed nations, had detailed pandemic plans 
that have evolved after the previous pandemics. We had a swine flu pandemic. We had an avian flu pandemic. And none of those pandemic plans ever recommended the lockdowns that we had. In fact, in my book and in, in even in this op-ed, I cite a group of uh, epidemiologists in the U.S. This group includes a gentleman who passed away recently called Donald Henderson. Donald Henderson was in charge of the effort that eradicated smallpox, one of the few diseases that we have managed to eradicate successfully. And uh, I'm just going to read a little bit from uh, what I wrote. So U.S. researchers, this is uh, Donald Henderson and... um, Others suggest that lockdowns reflect views prevalent more than half a century ago when we knew far less about the epidemiology of infectious diseases and when there was far less travel in a globalized world. So we knew quite a bit of this. Now, of course, every disease, every pandemic is somewhat different. Some are more transmissible, some are more lethal, some are both. But the other striking aspect of what happened to us in New Zealand and in other countries is that there were lessons fairly early on in 2020 that showed certain things that were completely ignored. To Just to give you an example, for instance, uh, as I point out in various places, we knew fairly early on that countries that had no land borders were at significantly lower risk of transmission. Countries that had a very low population density were at lower risk from from the disease. We also knew that this is a comparison, say, across countries. People have looked at within countries over time and and my friend and colleague John Gibson at Waikato looked at various counties in the United States because the counties are right next to each other. And what he looks at is some counties had harder lockdown, some didn't. It didn't make a difference. And the answer is it didn't make a big difference. The big difference came from human action, which is to say that people voluntarily decided not to go out, not to visit places, etc. And this was, as I point out in my book, this was one of the fundamental mistakes in all the modeling we heard about. You know, we kept hearing about these models. One of the big problems with these models is it doesn't allow for any human agency. Uh, The fact that when I tell you that, look, there's a deadly disease around, we don't go around doing the same kinds of things we're doing before. We adjust. Those models, by and large, do not factor this in. And therefore, in my book, I provide lots of evidences of people who have done this, people who have taken these epidemiological models, which are typically called SIR models, susceptible infected recovery models, and they have embedded human responses in there by saying, look, what do you, what would happen if people responded in certain ways? And the answer is never lockdowns. Right. Yeah. But the, but the problem was we got locked into this mindset as if we either had to have lockdowns 
or we did nothing. But that those were not really the options. Option, there were a continuum of options that were available, particularly in a country like New Zealand that we never really explored. It's interesting you mentioned modeling, computer modeling, because that's been talked about on and off right Correct. through this period. And in a way, the computer modelers were held up as some sort of geniuses, you know, like uh, uh, with their, uh, you know, cray supercomputer in the back room, sort of running all the numbers and coming up with some sort of AI Correct. response or whatever. But to, but you, you just shot all that down right there. If you're not including the human dimension of it, which is core to the issue, how can you ever get the modeling anywhere near reality? No, which is exactly why. I mean, there are two issues here, which is exactly why our models predicted 80,000 deaths in New Zealand. That's that was right. the early modeling. And right? that, that scared a lot of people. Remember Correct. That. And, and the problem, of course, look, you don't necessarily have to ascribe malign motives to some of these things. The problem, of course, is that if I do a particular thing, then I know how to do that particular thing. And I'm not necessarily thinking, well, are there other ways of looking at this problem? So, so the people who are doing this modeling were not really well informed about how to incorporate, let's say, economic insights or psychological insights into these models. When, when you get those people like you in the room for this and say, okay, there's the computer model. Sorry, I don't mean to dominate, but I'm just thinking as you're talking. Um, it, it was here's impossible. the modeler, here's the economics guy, here's what we think, Here, here's the sharing of ideas, you're going to have to offset your model with the behavior is going to be like this, the economic consequences will probably be like that downstream from that. Was there none of that? No, 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 it was impossible. It was, I mean, if you saw the Herald article I sent you saying that and this is not just an epidemiological crisis. So if you look at the right. COVID response uh, team, etc., their composition, these are all medical professionals. There were no one in these groups that were trained in undertaking things like cost-benefit analysis or things along those lines to say, is this policy justified, right? I, I want to say a couple other things. Let me go back to the other issue. The other issue, I've, I've written extensively on this. The other issue is that, see, the problem with the modeling is that it's a somewhat old-fashioned approach. It might sound strange to say that. Because what the model is saying is that, look, if this is the infection rate, this is the model in a propagation path, then here's what will happen. Now, in the very early days of a pandemic, a model might actually be useful. But today, we are also in the age of big data. So there was an enormous amount of data coming through from various countries and there were certainly people with the expertise in New Zealand, elsewhere, who could have crunched the data and said things like, hey, uh, seems like Taiwan is doing this, and this is what has happened. Seems like Japan is doing this, this is what has happened. Italy is doing this, this has you know, worked or not worked. So very quickly, within the first six to eight months, we already had access to an enormous amount of data. And people who are trained in that kind of analysis could have said, well, this seems to be working, this is not working. Um, which none of which, none of which was factored into um, into our decision making. There was there was no absolutely no way to get any cut through to well, policymakers. So you as a as a an economics um, professional, um, you, you could be knocking on the door then, and they were saying, "Sorry, 
No, no, no. The, the message was very clear, you know, go away. And the other issue, which is also quite surprising, um, is they, you know, people would say things like, oh, economists talks about dollars and cents. This is not about that. In fact, I make fun of this in my in my talks and things in the speeches I give. I said, you know, we make fun of Chris Hipkins because he said, um, oh, people want to go around and spread their legs. Yeah, it was, that was a and, big joke. Yeah. yeah, that was a big uh-huh, joke. Funny, funny. But the even bigger joke that Chris Hipkins made was we don't put a value on human lives. The reason that is a joke is because everyone puts a value on human lives. In fact, yes, in fact, Chris Hipkins at that time was the minister in charge of Formac. And if you go to the Formac website, I actually now, subsequently, when I teach my economics courses, I actually put this up front and center. The Formac website says that, look, because our funds are limited, we have to decide how to best allocate those funds. Right. To do this, we use the cost utility model where we look at the value of a quality adjusted life years. And we will only fund a pharmaceutical if it satisfies that test, that the cost is less than the quality adjusted life years that the drugs will, drug will save. Everyone does it. Everyone has estimates. If you were in an accident tomorrow and your you know, airbag didn't inflate, your lawyer would sue the car company. Hmm. And they would estimate damages based yeah. on your future earnings. So it was bizarre that this idea that of quality adjusted life years, that's an essential component of public policy making, all of a sudden, um, we we did not look at it. We refused to look at it. Uh, and yeah, it's all not just not knowing it's there; it's that refusing. Um, it's correct. A- correct. Any ideas on why you would refuse the absolutely fundamental component of the whole thing? The human, the human, the value of the human. I I don't know. Look, I mean, you could. I mean, obviously, you could engage in in theorizing. I think it's. It's much more simple than that. Um, I mean, you know, as they say that, you know, you don't necessarily need to attribute to malice that can be attributed to incompetence. And it's not it's not even incompetence. It's just that a particular mindset took hold. And once it took hold, it was difficult for people to get out of it. So I teach some of these things, you know, things like what's called availability heuristic or confirmation bias. So once I have come to believe something, it is actually very difficult to to not believe that. I mean, as they say, if a person's job depends on believing something, it's very difficult to make that person believe Good something point. else, no matter how true that is, right? Yeah, but when you're responsible for the citizens of a country in a government, you have to rise above that. That's what you sign up for. You do. You do. Um, again, uh, there wasn't, uh, I'm sure, as you understand, that there is a reckoning across the world. Uh, in England, for instance, the um, the SAGE group yep. has said that many of the recommendations were incorrect. But a particular kind of, you could think of this as, as panic or a mania, 
or you know his team. A, ma- a mania. Uh, a I've mania. heard of, of manias. You know, so they sweep through a group of Correct. people, right? And Correct. it becomes contagious in a way. Correct. So I mean, if I'm sure you know, you know, this thing called the Dutch tulip mania back in the 1600s. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Then you know, there's this thing called the South Sea bubble. In fact, you could even say that some of the cryptocurrency things were also a bit of a mania where people just kept you know investing in this without stopping to ask, you know, is this good? Is this right? Is this backed up by something? So it's actually not surprising. I think it was surprising to see it play out at this level. And uh, I want to flag one issue here, which is that COVID was really the first pandemic in the era of social media. That's a very good point. Twitter and Snapchat and whatever it is, and I don't use all of those. We didn't have that much beforehand. And this was the first time where ideas could be broadcast very quickly and and it was and once the initial idea had taken hold people who then started saying something like wait, wait a second you know have you considered this it was almost impossible to get any cut through because at that point you were either a granny killer or you know you were um, you know yeah you, you didn't not care nice, about human lives, but not, the question not a is... a nice person, yeah. Correct. But the question is, these are lives. It's not just livelihoods. It's not just dollars and cents. So either you have, you save COVID-19 lives and you lose other lives. And in my book, even in the op-ed, I provide evidence. So this evidence coming through. So there's a study of 24 European countries during the first six months of uh, 2020. And this study looks just as deaths, not not just COVID, the total deaths. And uh, they find that countries with harder lockdowns had more total deaths than countries with softer lockdowns. That's partly true in New Zealand also. Again, some of this data is coming through. But John Gibson and Rabbi Kato has shown that we did have a dip in the death rate in 2020, but then that was completely overtaken by excess deaths in early 2021 to the tune of about 1,200 excess deaths. So to say that we did not have any other deaths is incorrect. And and to have excess deaths, we can assume that we have experienced that because we see our um, you know like countries like us have experienced the same thing and have basically gone through the same thing. So it's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, yes, all, all the ducks line up. Yes, again, this is, uh, I also found this because I, I teach this idea of identified and statistical lives and, you know, these other unintended consequences of a public policy. It was surprising to see how deeply ingrained it became to the point that even questioning it, um, God would get you cancelled in some sense. Yeah, uh, yeah there were there, there, there was uh, a lot of um, it was like stepping on landmines. Just just even going there, not even going the full way there, going going there it was like there was some sort of patch protection. Do you think that's what happens when you get too much of a sort of myopic focus on something that um, kind of what goes with that is a, a dogged defense of what you're doing. There's certainly, there's certainly a bit of that. Once again, you know, we, um, we don't want to be flip-floppers. <laughs> so once no, you I've wanna, planted... You want to look decisive and certain in front of the Correct. nation, right? Yeah. Correct. So once I've planted my flag and I've taken up a position, it's actually difficult to... to um, 
convince people of to look at. So, um, so one of the things I say in my book, uh, for instance, and I'm surprised that organizations don't do this. This is a point that you raised earlier on by saying, you know, why didn't you guys raise this point? So, you know, this idea of the devil's advocate, right? Yeah. So the devil's advocate, you probably know, and for your readers, uh, for your listeners, um, it's, a, it's an office or it used to be an office in the Catholic Church, right. the advocatus diaboli. And the devil's advocate's job was the following. Anytime someone was going to be canonized, somebody was going to be made a saint, the devil's advocate's job was to provide arguments against that canonization. Now, the idea is that, you know, if I, if everybody thinks in the same way and I speak up, then I'm the jerk, you know, I'm rocking the boat. But because it was the devil's advocate's job to rock the boat, you know, he, he, I guess, I'm sure it was he all the time, not a she, yeah, uh, had the license to rock the boat, right? Yeah, so they, they had permission. They had permission, right? Yeah. That, you know, you need to argue against this. Sort of like the jester in the court of the old that's king. Right, that's you could, right. You could take the mickey out of the king and make a fool of him, but it was in a certain context, so you wouldn't lose your head. People would that's just right. laugh. So, and then uh, this office was done away with in the, I guess, maybe 80s, uh, 90s by Pope John Paul II. And guess what has happened since then, the 40 years since then, we have had many more canonizations in the Catholic Uh, Church in the last 40 years than in the previous 400 years. So it actually served a purpose. It 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 did, including Pope John Paul II, whose canonization has been questioned because of his support for certain scandals that are in his protection of certain scandals that happened in the Catholic Church. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. There's a beautiful movie about this called Spotlight. Right. Now, um, the title of your book, Nudged into Lockdown, Behavioral Economics, Uncertainty, and COVID-19. There's a question mark after lockdown, um, the nudged into lockdown part of that title. Nudged. Yes. Let's talk about being nudged. Correct. Were we? There was a nudge unit in the UK, right? So Correct. there Correct. was obviously thinking in the power structure that softly, softly, nudge, nudge, Correct. Like Monty Python, Correct. nudge, nudge, push them slowly, but keep pushing them. Correct. So, um, so in what's called behavioral economics or behavioral theory, there's idea of a nudge. A nudge basically sort of says, well, um, let's just kind of change the choice architecture a little bit. So just to give you an example, right, you know, without getting too fancy, for instance, you know, in school cafeterias, place the healthy stuff uh, in front. Or, you know, for instance, when you go to the supermarket next time, you will see that when you walk into any supermarket, the first aisle is always fruits and veggies. Yes, you're dead right. Uh, Yep. And And the very last aisle is usually ice cream and, you know, frozen pizza, fries, and things like that. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that we are much more likely to buy the ice cream and the frozen pizza if we have already loaded the trolley with some fruits and veggies. Okay, and the psychology for that is? It's that, you know, now that we have taken the fruits and veggies, we feel, okay, we have, you know, we have enough healthy things, so now we can buy the unhealthy unhealthy stuff. Yeah, so if it was the other way around, you'd be going straight to the unhealthy stuff, and uh, you wouldn't feel too good about that, perhaps. Correct. 
So, so that's the idea. Now, in some senses, sometimes there's a more formal name for this. It's called benevolent paternalism. So you know, the state is like a benevolent pater. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing too much. I'm just kind of saying, well, you know, think about this as an option, or wouldn't this be a nice option, right? And, and people but, trust it because they believe it's a, coming from a benevolent place. Ab- absolutely, yeah. absolutely, right? Now, um, some of that is probably unobjectionable, but some of that starts to kind of get into areas which may be a bit more questionable as it happened here, especially where your nudge is not backed up by a full view of the complexity of the problem. If you were nudging, you would be aware of that, I would imagine. So therefore, it stands to reason that you would minimize the full view. And that's what happened, isn't it? I mean, there, there was, there's been certain information in the media that hasn't got through to the mainstream that many of us were understanding early on in all this and making our decisions from it. That information was discredited. Turns out that most of it, or if not all of it, was either heading in the right direction or accurate. Correct. But, correct. Lots so, of things we were told was wrong turned out to be actually true. Yeah. Um, again, you know, I mean, do you want to say that this was? Do you want to say this was done deliberately? Maybe not. As I said, I mean, well, it, I don't know, be- but I think it's it's worth asking because you always wonder what drives people, and um, we're told about experts and epidemiologists and eminent people and and peer reviewed and all these things, and that's okay. But if it doesn't stack up at the you know, the reality end, you got to ask correct, correct. those questions. Yeah. So, so in some sense, you're right. I mean, um, uh, there's a there's a book called The Great COVID Panic by Paul Freiters with LSE and Gigi Foster, who's at the University of New South Wales and a third quarter. Uh, they actually make this point. They actually talk about this kind of um, scientist slash policymaker who were very much about protecting their turf in some senses. I mean, they quickly realize that they all of a sudden they're an enormous amount of power over people's lives. And it was difficult to kind of concede that power by saying, okay, maybe we don't have the correct answer. You know, maybe we are not the podium of truth. And there are you know other truths out there that we should pay attention to. Uh, but that certainly did not happen. I mean, for instance, I mean, I start out this um, um, op-ed by saying, you know, Ashley Bloomfield, who's now a colleague of mine, is saying, you know, lockdowns should be considered even in the future. But I think the evidence is overwhelming, uh, especially in and especially well, one thing. Um, well, sorry, things, I got to ask, yeah. how could he miss that? I don't know. We, I, we all know that. I mean, I we all, I, even I, I know, know that. I'm not even very smart. I haven't done anything in medicine. I know that. How come he doesn't know it? I don't know. He gave an uh, interview to RNZ where he says that, you know. Oh, no, I still... heard it. I, and I saw it, yeah. So, and I wonder, I, I wonder how you could be so out of touch. Yes, I, I don't know. I, no, I but, know you don't know, but uh, I, I the, just like saying that. <laughs> the other issue, also, of course, is that um, there, there are some vast differences between developed nations and developing nations that kind of got short shrift in this debate that, you know, what was maybe good or viable for developed countries was a recipe for disaster for many third world countries. And and one of the things I show in the book is that 
there is a very strong relationship between median age and COVID-19 death. So because many of the African Asian countries tend to have a very young population. So say in a country like Niger or Bangladesh, the median age is about 20. So 50% of people are are, uh, more than 20, 50% less than 20. Many of these countries were not at a lot of risk in any case. And I'm sure you have picked, picked up that there's a lot of talk about why did Africa not suffer the ravages of COVID with virtually no health system? And the answer is because the population is very young. So they were a lot more resilient. And, they were a lot uh, more resilient. And and, yeah. and some of the examples I provide, for instance, is that you know we were we went on and on about COVID deaths in South Africa. In 2020, South Africa had 49,000 deaths from COVID. But on any given year, South Africa loses 75,000 people to AIDS. Right. You never hear about that. You don't hear about that. But yet we were all about vaccinating for COVID. And one of the things that has happened is that because of this um, and the lockdowns and public policy, vaccination efforts for many other diseases have just fallen through the through the ground. So, so in many third world countries, we are seeing the resurgence of diseases that were almost gone. Polio is back. Measles is back. Measles is back even in New Zealand. Measles is back. Mm. Pertussis, whooping cough is back because we haven't vaccinated. Uh, literally, the World Health Organization suggests that we have not vaccinated about 100 million children in the proper sequence, because either we couldn't or, you know, we devoted too much time to COVID or too much money to COVID. Uh, But the fact is that COVID isn't that deadly a disease, particularly for young people. Yeah, it seems that, you know, as we keep talking about this, that every response was the wrong way around. It was wrong. They got it wrong on everything, right? Can you find anything that was done correctly? I mean, just one thing? Well, a couple of things. I think the the development of the vaccines, which were not particularly effective, but the technology, this this development of an mRNA vaccine. Look, this is way beyond my expertise. Yeah. But I yeah. think that is a significant achievement. And I also think that if you look back, maybe at the very start of the period, you could say, okay, a temporary shutdown just to give people time to assess. Well, it was two uh, weeks to lower the curve or whatever the, the correct thing correct. that's how it started that's when the first nudge occurred right correct <laughs> correct that's what yeah two weeks yes so the very first one uh, you could probably justify but the subsequent ones especially our Auckland lockdown late in 2021 because as you're probably aware even in September 2021 the director general of health was telling the government that look you know we don't need this anymore uh, so hmm. they're Obviously, was some other calculations behind um, this. So, what are the ramifications heading forward now, from your view as an economist, um, and and you know as a behavioural economist, what are the patterns of behaviour that have been altered? Are they lasting, and how will they sort of run economically? Do you think, or will we just sort of reset? in a sort of kind of clumsy way, pick ourselves up and go back to how we were. Is, it, is there any change that, 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 that is different from, from legacy that we can expect? 
So, Paul, I'm, I mean, I, this is a very broad question. I don't know if I know enough to answer these questions. Well, you can give your sense um, because yes, you, so, you understand what's happened, but, you know, how do people carry that forward? I mean, correct. we know that there, there, there's been an impact on business. We're correct, in a different correct. inflationary environment. You know, before exactly, this, exactly. the economy seemed to be ticking on quite well, but now, you know, eggs are nearly 12 bucks a dozen, so on and so forth. So, um, so you're absolutely correct. So I, I wrote about some of these things. Um, for instance, I said that, look, um, traditionally, if you look at various components, so traditionally, when we have a crisis, we are often responding to the crisis exposed. So we have the global financial crisis. We said, okay, what can we do to fix this crisis? But COVID in New Zealand, for instance, was a different kind of crisis because we are creating the crisis with one hand and we're fighting it with the other hand. So we are shutting down economic activity and then we are printing money to pay wage subsidies, right? And no matter how much people say this is Ukraine, uh, that money printing is the reason we have the cost of living crisis yeah. today to a large extent, right? And the other thing that happened, and this is very surprising for uh, for a progressive government, is that this money printing was a boon to white collar workers. You know, like you know, people like you and I who could do their work on computers, uh, sitting in the comfort of their homes, we really were not very well, very badly impacted. But if you were a blue collar worker, the janitors and the delivery people, I mean, the bizarre thing was the New York Times wrote an article saying, oh, stay safe, get your food delivered. But who the hell is delivering that food? Yeah, someone's that delivering person, it. Yeah. That person is being put at risk. Right. Well, if you believe the, you know, the way it was, you're Correct. being nudged. Right. Correct. Correct. So, so what? One of the other things that has happened is, you know, we kept interest rates low. So, you know, white collar workers who hadn't suffered much, we we had a scenario where the housing market was booming, the stock markets were booming because we had you know low interest rates. Whereas, you know, the blue collar workers were losing their jobs. So th there was a net transfer of wealth from blue collar to white collar workers. Now, the question, of course, as you said, going forward, have we learned the lessons? One hopes that we will learn some of these lessons. One also hopes that um, some of the people would be held responsible where, you know, there is evidence that um, that there was kind of malfeasance of some kind. Well, it should be looked at, shouldn't it? It should, it should, be, considered. It should be. And there is a, maybe there's a good time to bring up a commission of inquiry. Um, that uh, has that started or will be starting? That soon? started in February of this okay. year. Yeah, it's rolling now. Correct. The initial criticism of that, quite strong, was the terms of reference didn't allow a full, you know, um, uh, exposure to sunlight. You know, um, it, it just wasn't there. And it seemed to be that what was excluded would be the very things that could find fault, real fault with people. That and that again is another layer of suspicion and doubt that goes Correct. on. Correct. So I, I said this, I, you know, I don't know. I said that you know, the commission really needs to take a long, hard look at these unintended consequences. What happened? You know, school truancy rates. I, you probably know this, right? I mean, schools at the university attendance has dropped off massively. Yeah. And some of these people 
are just gone. I don't know what they're doing, but some students are just not getting any education. Well, I, I, interview, are, I interviewed a guy from yeah. Rotorua who's been campaigning because they've had a lot of emergency housing um, right. or motels in Rotorua because a lot of motels obviously turned into emergency housing. 30% of the people occupying them came from out of town. There was a huge influx of people into their town during this period at the same time as their primary business, the, the bottom fell out of it. And it's not been, not been very nice, you know, as you can imagine. Um, all that has well, to be. Other thing, sorry. Yeah, well, right. the other thing I, I do wish to raise before we, we end, because I think time will run out soon, is the, the assault on civil liber- liberties. I think we should not underestimate how uh, our rights and liberties were sacrificed. I mean, think about it for a minute. Um, the first nine days of the lockdown were deemed unlawful by high court. Yeah, I see you mentioned that uh, in the op-ed. Um, Obviously. Yeah. MIQ. I mean, could you ever imagine that there would come a day when Kiwis would not be able to return their own country? And it was a and, very unpleasant experience, Um because I, I spoke to someone very recently who went through that on the way back from the UK. Um, they had to separate rooms with his newly um, newly married partner, and he, he got food po- poisoning and was had a hell of a time, and they insisted he had COVID. He had food poisoning from the crap food that they were feeding them. So it was a horrible experience. You see what I see about, say about getting everything wrong? Correct. So, I mean, and and not only did you need space, you had to pay for it. And and of course, now it turns out no one really has paid. So there are millions of dollars outstanding. But for a family of four like mine, I would have to pay a substantial amount. So I obviously didn't go anywhere. Uh, but yeah, this expensive. is a, this is a fundamental right, right? This right to return to your own country. And a few people were rendered stateless as a result of this. You know, their visas had run out in other countries. Uh, the vaccine mandates, the police and defense force mandate was ruled partially unlawful. It's problematic when a government is doing things that are unlawful. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, no one has ever said, okay, sorry, you know, we overstepped or um, there has been no reckoning. Uh, and and when some people started speaking out, you know, the government responded by saying, oh, we're going to have hate speech laws or and and I mean, look, I I've said this else elsewhere, so I have no compunction saying this. Occupy Wall Street, we support. Black Lives Matter, we support. And those are justified fundamental grievances. But then our own citizens showed up in Wellington, and all of a sudden yes. there were rivers of filth. I don't get it. I mean, how how can we support these? You know. Other things, it will be so inconsistent. These are justified. But when our people showed up, we blasted them with water cannons. I I didn't get it. Sonic weapons. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. I just just found that tough to take. Well, Uh, it could could be the same mindset as the the panic that, that explains possibly the whole response. Sitting in there. Correct. In Parliament after seeing January the 6th in the USA. And we now know that that's, that's, you know, we didn't see the full picture of that either. But being influenced by that, thinking that you're literally, you know, there's a siege against you outside. It's getting dangerous. It's scary. And, you know, we, we just can't entertain having anything to do with it. Maybe maybe it's the same sort of panic 
Mode. Could be, could be, could be. But I found yeah. that I found that astounding that these are where our own citizens, many of whom had lost their jobs uh, because of the vaccine mandate, and when they showed up to protest, all of a sudden, you know, they were invariably racists or right wing. Or yeah, well, that's always the go-to right wing, <laughs> and 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 Putin's funding them, and, and things like that. And then, of course, the brutal clearing out and um, you know a lot of good people were injured i hopefully i mean that really needs to be part of some sort of royal commission even to understand what happened there look if if people want to get to the book um what's the best way to to get to the book oh so the book is available on any you know amazon any Mm. of these online uh outlets amazon mighty ape book depository, any of these things. And then all publishers also list it with cools and everyone else. They may not have copies immediately, but uh, they can always order a copy. The book yeah, is actually a reasonably, it's a little bit more expensive than I wanted it to be, but you know, I don't really control. I don't, you got nothing to do with that. Yeah, that's no, fair right. enough. Okay. Well, I hope you get something for, for it. Ananish Chaudhuri, thank you for coming on our program and, um, and and sort of giving your your perspective on that. And there's plenty to think about. And we'll we'll follow how we pick up the pieces, I suppose, and, and sure. see how we do in the in the future. Thanks for your time. Really, thank you so that. much, Paul. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.